Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. The best place to find great talent for your hiring needs is LinkedIn. In fact, 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn. For a $50 credit toward your first job post, visit linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. It's Monday, June 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, it's David Cressman. Fresh from the weekend at Fresh from Fool Fest. Absolutely. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about Fool Fest. Uh, we're going to share some highlights. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. We've got to start with the deal of the day, and that is Microsoft buying GitHub for $7.5 billion in stock. Uh, and, and I'm sure at least some of you are saying, what in the world is GitHub? It is a coding platform. And uh, this is one of those situations where the big tech company has their own version of something, it doesn't work as well or it's not as popular. And they say, you know what? We're just going to shut this thing down and we're going to go out and buy that. And that was, you know, Microsoft had CodePlex and they shut it down a year ago because it just wasn't as popular as GitHub. Yeah, GitHub gives them uh, really a, what seems like a burgeoning community of software developers. And as we know from former CEO Steve Ballmer, Microsoft loves developers. If you don't know what I'm referring to, <laughs> go to YouTube and search Steve Ballmer developers, and uh, it'll be a minute of your day well spent. So anyway, yeah, I think this makes sense for for Microsoft. They they have a long focus on software development, and this uh, you know brings more and more of those developers, open source projects and stuff under uh, the Microsoft umbrella. So, it makes sense. The the one thing, the main thing that I do question about the acquisition is, as you mentioned, they're they're paying for it completely with uh, shares, but they're also going to offset that dilution by ramping up their stock buybacks, which they've already been buying back stock the past several years. So basically, they're saying we're going to pay. We're going to dilute ourselves. We're going to issue shares to to make this acquisition, but then we're going to buy back shares, and that's just a little bit backwards to me. Because if your stock is expensive, go ahead and use that stock as a currency to 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 make an acquisition. But if your stock is is expensive and you're making acquisitions, you probably don't want to be buying back stock at the same time. So from a capital allocation perspective, it's hard for me to to. To really make a whole lot of sense out of that, and I think in this case, Microsoft kind of is caught with their pants down because they've been making tens of billions of dollars of acquisitions the past or of buybacks, excuse me, the past few years. So at this point, I just take a step back and I think, why not use your forty-three billion dollars in net cash to just pay outright for GitHub rather than than relying on on stocks? So anyway, that that's the main. Kind of question mark I see with the deal, but otherwise it probably makes sense. Yeah, that, that was my only question as well. I mean, they don't. Microsoft does not have Apple levels of cash, but they've got cash. They've got plenty. They've got plenty of cash, and so one of the things I was just sort of wondering, and there's there's no earthly reason that Satya Nadella and his team would ever disclose this, but it did make me wonder, like, well, maybe. so they're not doing that with their cash. What are what are they saving it for? It it, it makes me curious. If they are just getting ready for another deal uh, that is going to involve some cash, or maybe they're just thinking more along the buyback lines, but yeah, uh, I, I just don't see what what they accomplish because they're still spending the cash on buying back the stock. So why not just you know from the get go just use cash for the acquisition? Because in this case, they're doing both. You're kind of double dipping, uh, but but 
basically, when you're a company, you want to buy back stock when you think your shares are undervalued, and when your shares might be on the pricier side of things, it totally makes sense to use that as a currency to make acquisitions. So in this case, they're trying to do do both, and it just seems. Inconsistent, so I'm not really sure what the game plan there is. Yeah, one more thing regarding Nadella. This is this acquisition just moves Microsoft as an overall business further and further away from the Steve Ballmer era. Mm-hmm. This is just one more step in that direction. Yeah, and I mean, and I, and and by the way. Good for Microsoft and good for their shareholders. Yeah, that, that's the direction you want to be moving. And I mean, as much as I am bringing up dilution, it is minor. I mean, this will be this will dilute less than one percent of shares outstanding. They're, they'll buy back, I think, over thirty billion dollars. They have a share buyback authorization, I think, of thirty billion dollars now. So, company is still swimming in cash, um, generating a ton of free cash flow each year. So, from a cash perspective, the company is still on very solid ground. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. From Christian Pike in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Christian writes, Last month on MarketFoolery, an in-depth comparison was made between Fitbit and Apple Watch. To keep things short and to the point, I'm curious why Garmin wasn't thrown into the comparison. It seems like everyone I know, including myself, who is into fitness, owns and prefers Garmin watches. With Garmin also sitting on a pile of cash and having a seemingly solid aviation avionics business, I'd love to hear your expert opinions on this company. Thank you all. Stay awesome. Uh, great question. And uh, just as an aside, have you ever been to Tulsa? I might have driven through it, but I don't know if I've never been to Tulsa. But the more I read about it and and hear about it, the more it seems like one of those cities I need to get to at some point. Ah, let's make it happen. Road trip. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not close to where we are, but uh, you know, yeah, we'll hit the road. John to the Midwest. Couple of days, we'll just do a tour of the Midwest. (laughs) Um, It's a great question, and and uh, I mean, when you look at Garmin, I mean, certainly the over the past year, the stock has done not just better than Fitbit. Because let's face it, a lot of stocks have done better than Fitbit over <laughs> yes. the last over the last year. But Garmin has also outpaced the market over the past year. Yeah, and it kind of it surprised me because over the past three and five years, Garmin has outperformed the S and P five hundred as well, just just by a little bit, but nonetheless still impressive. Because I think this is a company that a lot of people have written off over the past decade. I mean, if if you look at a chart of Garmin from like two thousand to two thousand eight, stock was a ten bagger uh, over that time period. But then, I mean, you had the recession come. Um, the the iPhone and smartphone revolution just really took away the need for a lot of people to buy a standalone GPS device. But but the company today is actually nicely diversified. They have five different segments. So they have automotive, outdoor, fitness, aviation, and marine. And over the past decade, they've really transitioned from most of their revenue coming from the auto segment to now outdoor and fitness is really what's driving that. So. It, to me, it seems like the company is really focusing a little bit more on niche segments. So they have like GPS trackers for golfers. We'll have to talk to JMO, uh, Jason <laughs> Moser, when he's back in the office, see if he's ever used that to track his swings or his, you know, the distance of, of the hits and stuff. Um, and, and they do have some of like the the smart watches and things of that sort, where they're probably more directly going up against Fitbit and Apple Watch, more of the consumer devices. But then in the meantime, they they have a nice you know couple segments with you know uh, uh, GPS trackers for planes and pilots and sailors and you know people out out on the water you know fishermen all all that kind of stuff. 
the the one issue is that the, the company really isn't growing all that quickly. I think you're seeing that auto segment shrink, but in the meantime, overall revenue last year, for instance, only grew two percent. Operating income expanded a little bit more beyond that, so they are expanding margins a bit. But this is not a fast growth company. Uh, they're, they're generating uh, about $600 million in free cash flow a year. Most of that they're paying out in the form of a dividend. So, right now, the dividend yield is actually attractive. It's about 3.3%. Uh, and, and a couple of years ago, it was actually as high as, I think, 5.6%. So, from that perspective, like compared to a Fitbit, you know, Garmin is much more diversified. They don't have all their eggs in one kind of lousy, mediocre basket, uh, <laughs> which is really the situation Fitbit is in. But even so, they're still far behind the progress that Apple is making with the Apple Watch, which is growing in the double digits. And meanwhile, Garmin is just kind of inching out a little bit of growth each year. But I'm impressed with the company. They have over a billion dollars in cash, free cash flow production is solid. They have a nice diversified business. So, I mean, you could put your money in worse. Businesses, but this isn't going to be a fast grower. It's interesting, just because when Christian was referring to his friends, you know, people who are fitness buffs, we've got all kinds of Slack channels here at the Motley Fool, and one of them is for people at the office who run. And I've no, I don't, I don't have a Garmin watch or any kind of smartwatch when I'm when I'm out there running. But there are plenty of people in that in our sort of full running channel who are definitely prefer the Garmin devices. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the jobs report last Friday. Unemployment down to 3.8%. Have you actually tried to hire someone lately? It's hard, but it doesn't have to be with LinkedIn. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It is also a better way to find great talent. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn, and businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. And that's what you want when you're posting a job. You want quality candidates. You post to job boards, and you hope that the right person is going to find your job, but come on, how often? Do you check job boards? For most people, it's a pretty occasional thing, but LinkedIn is a place where people go daily to explore job opportunities and to grow professionally. And if you're not using LinkedIn for your hiring needs, you're missing out. So go to LinkedIn.com slash fool and get a $50 credit toward your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash fool for your $50 credit today. Terms and conditions apply. Couple of thank yous before we get to Fool Fest. First, thank you to everyone who came out to our listener meetup in DC last Wednesday. We had a great time at Dakota, which is in the Shaw neighborhood in DC. Fantastic place. Awesome. And thanks to Christine Hargis for for finding Dakota and setting all that up. And thank you to everyone who came to Fool Fest. We had hundreds of people. Uh, here on Thursday and Friday, and um, a bunch of people came up and mentioned that they listened to the podcast, which is which is always great. It's always wonderful to meet people who listen and find out where they are when they listen and what they're doing and and all that sort of thing. And apologies to the to the few people that I spoke to um, who were clearly disappointed to talk to me in person 
because when they listen to the podcast, they listen at a greater speed. They listen at like one and a half times the speed. <laughs> so talking to me in person was an inferior version of my voice. Oh, it throws me off too because I listen to our podcast at like 1.5x speed, and then I, I think I've told you at some point like it sounds like you're talking through molasses or something <laughs> in real time. So you're not the only ones listeners. So in terms of the event, obviously you were you were on the main stage. You were part of one of the panels that we had up there. You you were in breakout sessions, and you got a chance to observe some of the other stuff going on there. What, as you step back and look at two days worth of our investment conference, what investing takeaways do you have? Whether it's hey, I'm more interested in this than I used to be, or uh, something from uh, that you heard from someone else. Yeah, I'd say one of the stocks I want to take a closer look at is one that Aaron Bush mentioned on our main stage presentation to kick off the day on Thursday. That's JD.com. I think made a compelling case that JD, which is basically the second largest e-commerce retailer in China behind Alibaba, made a compelling case that the company is probably being undervalued lately. The stock has been hit in recent months. I think mainly over concerns that their margins are being suppressed and you know how. How likely is the company to be able to raise margins when they're going up against increased competition from Alibaba? But you have a founder-led company there, growing very quickly, investing in their own fulfillment and shipping and logistics infrastructure, as opposed to just that pure marketplace model that Alibaba has focused on. So that's one I do own a little bit in my own portfolio, but that's one I want to take a look at because I think there is an interesting case to be made that the core retail business is being undervalued because they do have a couple other. Branches of the business, um, which have been valued at at a higher multiple. Um, so anyway, that that that's certainly uh, from an investing perspective, one one stock that I want to take a closer look at. And then, yeah, a lot of impressive uh, presenters. I wasn't able to see them all live, but over the weekend, uh, rewatched uh, Tom Gardner's interview with Randy Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. who is the among other things the brother of Mark Zuckerberg, but sister. Uh, yeah, sister. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, we're not going to edit that out. But uh, yeah, yeah, that that would be interesting. But um, yeah, very impressive. Uh, I mean, she spent a lot of time at Facebook in the uh, the early days, and uh, I guess yeah, she she focused among other things on uh, Facebook Live, creating that product. Uh, she's an accomplished VC investor, so just really enjoyed yeah, hearing her insights. Um, about Facebook, um, the, the world of uh, VC investing, particularly focused on female entrepreneurs and uh, things of that sort. So, a lot of a lot of takeaways there. And I was also pleasantly surprised that we had a lot of listeners come up and reference the Kretzmann Gardner continuum. Yes, yeah, I, I was surprised about that. I was like, does anyone really pay attention to that? But oh, yes, they do. So that was a, a great surprise. So for so this is something that has come up on David Gardner's uh, Rule Breaker Investing podcast. For those who are unfamiliar, just a brief synopsis of the Kretzmann. You know, I think one of the things that's up for debate is: is it the Kretzmann Gardner continuum? Or yeah, Gardner Kretzmann. I think I said it wrong. It's actually Gardner Kretzmann continuum. So GKC score is uh, what we've go. been referring to it as. So, yeah, I was giving myself a little too much credit there. <laughs> uh, can't take take the thunder from David, but yeah, basically it's the amount of stocks you own divided by your age. And I think when David and I first came up. With the score, it was largely David coming up with it, and he was kind enough to lump me into it. Uh, th- this was on a Rule Breaker Investing podcast, I think, two months ago. If anyone wants to uh, to go back and find it, but when we came up with it, I think David, as someone who's in his mid fifties and owns about fifty five stocks, he thought a score of one is a sweet spot. So you should roughly own as many stocks as your age uh, in years. 
But uh, for me, I'm in my mid twenties. I own closer to seventy-five stocks, so I'm thinking, okay, the 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 goal of the GKC score should be to have at least one or higher. So uh, just kind of a fun, random little uh, metric <laughs> that we came came up with. Probably won't hear that reference outside of the fool, but uh, I was uh, I was very flattered that a lot of members uh, were mentioning that to me. The one other thing I'll throw out there is uh, we. We have main stage presentations, and then we have in the afternoons we have breakout sessions that people can essentially choose their own adventure and do. And one of the the session that I heard that was name checked the most at the receptions at the end of the day, both on Thursday and Friday, was the one that Andy Cross and Ron Gross did the the when to sell. Interesting, yeah. And and just uh, not just that people were complimentary of of the uh, the way that Andy and Ron ran that session, but it's just a reminder that. Uh, all of us, you know, it does. It, this is not a question that novice investors only wrestle with. Even the most experienced investors are dealing with sort of when to sell because we all have our own situations. We all have. It's like, well, okay, so do I sell these stocks to to buy to fuel further um, purchases? Do I, you know, because and that and in, and by the way, this is something I personally am uh, evolving on in my position because in the past that's how I have viewed uh, a way to uh, buy different stocks and say, well, I'm going to sell these and I'm going to buy these other ones instead. And now I'm I'm starting to move over towards the idea of, as uh, we've talked about before, in some cases you're better off just never selling. Hmm. In part, in part, because sometimes things rebound, and otherwise, you know, it's like, well, you know, if I sell my Under Armour now, eh, how much money am I actually going to get? Because right. <laughs> I'm so far underwater on that. It's like, oh, maybe just hold on to it. Maybe, maybe Plank turns it around. We'll see. Yeah, it might not help you too much. And I think that that's sort of the the mindset that I've taken more and more when just thinking about portfolio management, especially when you have years or decades in front of you to invest and continue to add to your portfolios, I think the, the urgency to sell becomes less and less. Uh, it, it just be, it matters uh, less and less the longer your, your time horizon is. And it's funny enough that, that you mentioned the, that uh, session with Ron and Andy, because after that, I was talking to Ron just uh, outside while we were waiting for the cocktail hour. To start, and he mentioned, "Yeah, you know, I, I'm much more structured, you know, with my presentation approach." And Andy just gets up there, and he's free flowing and <laughs> off the cuff. But it sounds like they struck a right balance. Of members were overpraising it, so well done, Ron and Andy. David Cressman, thanks for being here, man. Th- thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.